ladies and gentlemen, it is your host. That's right, Day One Podcast, Andre Norman. I'm saying Academy of Hope. We are back in the building. Sorry to be gone so long. I did miss you. I'm saying it's been a phenomenal trip. Been around the world a little bit, but I am back here on set. And we have a new, phenomenal, the next greatest. I'm saying the latest in the line of great people that come to you. Everybody I know wants to sit in this chair because everybody I know wants to encourage and help people behind the walls do and be better. So we have a sister here with us today who's going to bless you, enlighten you, and give you some new insights on how to do and be better. So without further ado, Somerville, Georgia, is in the building. <laughs> You'd like to introduce yourself, yes. please. Hey, everybody. My name is Jennifer Rogers, and I am originally from Somerville, Georgia. I have lived in Atlanta, Georgia, for the last 13 and a half years, and um, did two years in a maximum security federal prison in my early 20s for selling drugs. I was also addicted to methamphetamines. So I served my time in prison, got out, turned my life around, and here we are today. So you grew up in Somerville? Yes. Little town? Very small town. Um, I actually got indicted by the feds in Rome, Georgia. So that's really where my crime took place, which is um, another small town just north of Somerville. Okay. High school Somerville. Tell me about it. So, Chattooga County, Chattooga High School is... To, to who? Chattooga. So, yeah, we officially in the country. Yes, we're in the country. Um, that's where I started high school. I was a um, competitive cheerleader in high school. Um, moved schools my 11th grade year, my junior year, to Armurchie High School, which is a school outside of where Rome is. So, it's right. Floyd County. So, I was Miss Armurchie High School, captain of my co-ed, all-star cheerleading squad. Crushing it. Crushing it, got addicted to methamphetamines at 17 years Stop. old. Stop. You just don't go chilly to give me an H, give me a C, to give me some meth. Right. Um, how, I mean, how do you make that transition from... Uh, right. You just, you just said it like, yo, I went to the store and I bought some shoes. <laughs> nah, I mean... Did you start drinking first, smoking cigarettes well, first? Well, I think in a small town, everybody drinks, everybody smokes weed young. I mean, there's really not much else to do, but I wouldn't say that that was the thing that got me involved So you started in smoking weed at what age? Uh, I would have been probably 10th grade when I tried weed for the first time. And drinking? Drinking, we were all drinking in 9th grade. Where okay. I'm from. Then how do you weekends. shift from weed and drinking to meth? No, I think it boils down to you have a heart problem. And what I mean by that is you are missing something in your life. My parents got divorced when I was 13 years old, and it wrecked my entire life. And when that happened, I learned at a very young age how to be two different people. And that was who I presented myself as to the world and who I was on the inside. And unfortunately, who I was on the inside was a very broken, still little girl that was searching for love and acceptance and in all the wrong places. Even though I was popular and I was successful in high school and I had great grades, once I moved into a different high school, I was actually working at a store in the mall. And my store manager introduced me to methamphetamines at 17 years old. Shut that store down, y'all. And I tried it for the first time. 
And the first time that I tried it, it scared me. I didn't do it again for probably a couple of weeks. Then I ended up trying it again with another friend of mine, and then I was just addicted. How about this? I got some, get new friends. Right. Well, once I started using, I realized that everybody around me was using. Then it's like, oh, you too. Everybody, literally. And so it was like, wow, like there's this whole group of people that I knew that I didn't know were involved, and it was fun. It, it was, was fun. wild. It was a new experience every time you did it. And then I was always thicker. And where I'm from, as a white girl, if you weren't real thin skinny, you were fat. And so meth made me skinny. And that was really where my addictions really derived from originally was because I lost all this weight. I was very thin and it felt good because for the first time I could look in the mirror and I could identify with the skinny girls that I went to high school with. So you're doing meth for how for a few years, I take it. Yes. So and it all comes to a crashing halt. Several times. And then you end up in court the last time, and they say, Jennifer, you're going to prison. Well, basically, my first arrest was 18 years old, 60 days from my senior graduation. And because I was in a small town, it was highly publicized all over the radio, front page of the newspaper. You made the radio. Miss Summerchi High School. Arrested on a Sunday, asked where she was going, said she was going to school, possession of methamphetamines. Gotcha. So I got out from that, had my daughter, ended up getting pregnant, um, had to get my drop out and get my GED. They wouldn't let me graduate because I was an out of area student. And a year later, after I had her, I went right back to using again. And um, ended up going to court on that charge. I pled first offender to a possession of drug-related objects. They drug tested me the one time that I had to report on probation and I failed it for methamphetamines. So they revoked me. I had to do 60 days in county jail. Once I got out from that. Oh, no, no. You go in for 60 days? Yep. What do you do? Like, do you try to get treatment? You try and they like didn't even offer that. They gave me a two-for-one, so I ended up serving 30 days. My daughter was four months old at the time, and I had married her father, who had went into the military. So when I get out, he had gotten stationed in the state of Washington. So I moved out to Washington State. That is the worst place on the planet for meth addict. I didn't know because I didn't know anybody. So I actually had a thriving life out there. Um, I was running an all-star cheerleading gym. And I was clean for the first time. For a year, I was clean. And I had great friends, but my marriage was miserably failing because I got pregnant. And when you're in a small town, you get pregnant, you get married. That's what you do. And so, you know, I'm married, and I'm 20 years old. And I'm living in Washington State, away from everything and everyone I know. And as my marriage began to miserably fail, I flew home for Easter got high again for the first time and felt like I was missing out on the world. So you backed down that rabbit hole. Yep. Came back and functioned as an addict, as a successful addict, for a couple of years until the snowball effect came crashing down and multiple arrests ended up with a federal indictment. So day one, you come in, they process you, take all your stuff, they give you the outfit, you're sitting, they give you your, your bedroll, Going to dorm C, you walk down there and you're like, 
I literally went in my cell, and our cells, we had cells, they had doors on the cells, and I closed the door, and I just cried because I couldn't imagine that this was going to be my life for the next two years. And luckily, the bunkmate that I had, um, that the, the, the room that I moved into, she was so great for where I was in that moment because she understood Um, You know, that had been her at one point. And so she just held space for me in that moment. And it's like, you know, it's going to be okay. You get used to it. And you hear that. But you're like, you know. I hear you on the crying. I hear you on my life is horrible right now. Where are you on accountability for where your life is? Oh, I was angry. I was angry at God because God. I was like, yeah, I was mad at God. I'm going to tell you why. Your boss gave you the math, not God. <laughs> no, I'm, telling, I'm going to tell you why I was mad at God. So I gave up on God at 13 when my parents got divorced. I was raised in a very small town, went to church every Sunday. And I remember when I was in the middle of my addiction, my dad used to say all the time, I'm praying for you. And I was like, do not pray for me. Like the God that I grew up believing in abandoned me at 13 years old. Don't pray for me. So back up to while I'm in county jail on this federal indictment, I had been in there for like 10 days. A woman comes in with a church and I'd never had a conversation with her before. And she says, can I pray for you? And at that point, I had nothing left to lose because I had nothing. So I'm Go like, you, yeah, you can pray for me. She prayed for me. She spoke in tongues. She looked me directly in my eyes when she got done. She said, you will never go back to your addiction again. And in that moment, I knew I'd never go back, and I never did. I felt like I could breathe again for the first time in six years. So I developed a relationship with God after that again. And I did all the steps. I did everything that I was supposed to do. I was out here telling my story. I was standing up in front of people. I was like the model pre-trial citizen. Now, here I am again, back incarcerated, and not even just incarcerated, but incarcerated in a maximum security facility. And I didn't understand. I'm like, why? Why am I here? Why? Because possession and transportation But I was supposed to be in a camp not in a maximum security facility. That was more of what it was about, that I was angry. Mm. I'm like, you know how they say you have like... You can't pick your own prison Right, but you know how they say you have like the seven steps of grief. Mine is like the seven steps of anger, and they just build up. Well, I was in those seven steps of anger. The world ain't fair right now. The world's not fair. Right, world's not fair. I'm angry at God. I'm not ready to look at myself I should be playing putt-putt golf, and I'm up here. Right, (laughs) (laughs) right. I should be on a country music stage singing country music somewhere right now. You surely should be singing I should have been doing so I'm in this prison and I'm sad and I'm mad and I at everybody but everybody yourself. but myself so I sit with myself and I finally start to get over my my stages of anger and I start to look at myself what like did you see a broken individual that needed to heal a woman that had disappointed everyone in her life for the last six years and particularly my daughter, and how do I fix this? So I began to read, and I began to write, and I went to counseling. The prison that I was at had no programs, but they did offer counseling. When you went to counseling, because I've seen people go to counseling before, and it's just to get out of their cell or to get out of the dorm, someone else to talk to, someone else to tell their stories to. What did you do when you went to counseling that you hadn't done before? Because this wasn't the first counselor that you've seen in your life. No, it wasn't. So what was different about this counseling session? I was honest about who I was and where I was. 
and the things that had taken place in my life that I was responsible for and the things that I was not responsible for, but that I had carried my entire life and people that I needed to forgive that would never give me an apology. And I faced those things for the first time in my entire life. Back inside, you come in, you're on your bunk crying. Luckily, you had a great celly, a little bunky, depending on what part of state you're in, who helped you hold the space. What did you do moving forward to say, okay, Saturday going to counseling, what am I going to do with this two years? Right. How do you go back and give advice to that early you? I worked out. That was my outlet. We didn't have an outside yard, but we had this little rec room in our pod. So I worked out for like three and four hours a day, developed workout programs. Then I taught other inmates, and we'd be in there in a group working out. But I read a lot, and I wrote a lot, and I began to write a book when I was in prison. But I journaled everything that I felt from the moment that I went in to the moment that I got out, and I thought about everything that I wanted to accomplish in my life. And it wasn't always easy. I got locked in solitary confinement. No. Twice. No. The first time I was guilty, <laughs> we were taking sugar from the kitchen. Back Hold on. <laughs> you coffee drinker? Yes. And that's why we were stealing <laughs> it. But you know, you couldn't have it because people would make hooch. But so, okay, hold on. You stealing sugar from the coffee? Yes. Stealing sugar from the, from the kitchen and got yes. caught. How yes. you get caught? You weren't good at it? Yeah, we have been doing it for months, but we weren't taking, like, little bits. We were taking, like, Pounds. bricks of sugar. <laughs> we're like, we got them wrapped up. Don't get caught <laughs> smuggling sugar from the canteen or the kitchen. We get on the elevator to go up. They shake us all down. Boom. Picture that. Yep. Shake, shake down us, in jail. Shake us all down. You're like, why are y'all shaking us down? You're in jail. And me and my cellmate at the time both get caught. So they put us in solitary confinement together in the same room. So that wasn't hard. That was like a vacation. We're in there 10 St days. No, no. Staycation. Staycation, yes. We're in there 10 <laughs> Staycation days. Staycation at the federal penitentiary. Talking, laughing, whatever. But fast forward, I get, I go to, to my job in the kitchen. They get your job back? Yes, they gave me my job back. And they come in one day and handcuff me. Again? Like, just on GP handcuff me. Oh. Don't tell me why. Take me straight up to SEG. And they put me in this room, and it's like true solitary confinement. 24 hours a day. By yourself. By myself. Lights on. Feed me through a hole in the door. For three weeks I was in there. There was no shower. On the women's side, it was a co-ed prison. On the men's side, in their max facility, the men had pr showers in their cells, and they never came out. On the women's side, there was no shower. So they let you out Monday, Wednesday, Friday for a five-minute shower, and then they put you back in. I thought that I was going to lose my mind that first seven days that I was in there. And I didn't know why I was in there because they hadn't told me yet. Seven days rolls around. The feds show up, bring me in a room, start questioning me about an, a male officer because he was having sex with another female person, inmate. inmate. And I took her job in veg prep. So now they're investigating me that I'm sleeping with the officer. He worked in the kitchen. He worked in the kitchen. So she had that job. So you got that job. So you must, there's a chance, an opportunity right. pushed up on you. Right. So you're back in sex so under I'm investigation. In under investigation. You clear that. Feds are trying to, like, bully me into giving them a confession. And I'm like, I didn't, like, I don't have any involvement with him. And they're like, we will give you five years on top of your sentence if we find out you're lying. And I was like, I don't care. Like, and so they kept me in there for three weeks. 
They cleared you and cleared let you go. me, let me back out in the general population. But it was during that time, after those first seven days, when I found my peace. In solitary. In solitary. I conquered my emotional state and I conquered my mental state. And I knew in that moment, if I can conquer myself in this, there is nothing that I cannot accomplish in my life. Bars. And I carried that. 13 years later, I'm still carrying that. And I, once I got released, I never looked back. And I have been an unstoppable force in every single area of my life that I walk into. And you thought going to solitary was a bad thing. Yep. Turned out to be a blessing for me. I found myself in solitary. Whole another story. Read the book. So you come home. You go live with the lady you hate. Mm-hmm. How's that? You know, by that point, I was such a healed version of myself that I no longer hated her. I was thankful that she gave me a place to live, a roof over my head and a car to drive. And I will never forget. So I was in the halfway house for two weeks in Atlanta, and I got a job from the halfway house. I We had all these illegal cell phones. Now they let you have cell phones. Back then, no. You had an illegal cell phone. They were everywhere. They Shame were in the ceiling you. tiles. Everybody had them. That doesn't make it right. Everybody had sugar. <laughs> this is true. So I there was an ad that had been ran in the AJC, and it was for inside sales, telemarketing. Well, I had done a telemarketing job in my 20s in the middle of my addiction, and I knew I was good at it. So I call this interview. I call in. They want to bring me in for an in-person interview. Now I got to convince Mr. Jones, the halfway house director, how I even got this interview in the first place on my illegal cell phone that I wasn't supposed to have. So he clears me for the interview. And I go in. You know, I'm in a business suit. I don't look or sound like I've been just gotten out of a federal prison. No. Nah. So I go into this interview. They'd never hired a woman in Atlanta before in this sales company. And I'm in this interview, and it's going well. And I knew that they were going to hire me. And so I interrupted the interview. And you I was bold. like. I had to. I wanted to lay my cards on the table. I just wanted to be honest about who I was. And I was like, listen. And I said it just like this. I want to be honest with you about who I am. I just got out of a maximum security federal prison. I was a drug dealer and a drug addict, and I am not that person anymore, and I'm going to make somebody a lot of money. They hire you? Room goes awkward silence. He's suit, tied, dressed up, poised, Portland, Oregon. He don't know what to say. Awkward silence in the room. And I institutionalized. I laid my cards on the table. I don't know what the hell to say after that. So he finally breaks the silence and says, holy shit, I wasn't expecting that. He laughs. I laugh. They hired me. Six months later, I was traveling the country, opening up offices for that company, training people on how to sell over the phone. Congratulations. Thank you. That's what you call a boss move. Yep. Honesty works. Honesty works. So now... What was the, again, we talked about the hardest transition. When you were inside, you said you read books. What was your favorite books? The Captivity Series had to have been my favorite book. Who wrote those? I never heard of them. That book is by, um, God, what is her name? I can't think of her name right off, but she's a well-known Christian. She's a Christian writer. Um, also, big-time public speaker. She tried, Katie Souza, that's her name, Katie Souza. Ironically, Katie Souza came into the prison, so I didn't go over this, but they denied my halfway house time originally, and I was supposed to have gotten out December 17, 2009. Counselor calls me in. We denied your halfway house time. Then, because you missed the halfway house time, you were there when Susie came. I was there when Katie Souza comes in. 
You see how that works? See how it works? She comes up to me at the end of her little performance that she did. And she said, God spoke to me about you. She said, you're never going to come back here again. And when you get out of here, your life will take off. And one day you will get your daughter. And she will never remember a day that you lost with her. I got out two days later. And my life took off. What are you doing now? Now, I... No, no, I got to act like I don't really know. So I'm just faking. I'm an interviewer. <laughs> I gotta, for for y'all, I got to fake this part. Fake it till you make it. So what are you doing now? I am the founder of National Association of Women's Prison Reform, Rise Up Media Group, the Up Business System. I am a real estate agent. I have full custody of my now 18-year-old daughter who has just graduated and going off to college, six-year-old son, public speaker for the government. I go around and talk inside of federal prisons. Now the same government body that put me in prison pays me to tell my story. Boss. We can snap or we can clap, but I'm saying if you're home, <laughs> you're in your spot, you should be clapping right now. You should actually be cheering <laughs> that she came out of the penitentiary and she took both times that she thought was a problem and turned it into a gift. Mm. And now the people that used to hold you pay you. Pay me. The people, what was that like when you got that first check? Did you frame it? Listen, when I filled out the RFQ package to bid on it, it was long. It was hard. I didn't know what most of the language in it meant. I had to call somebody. Phone, I phoned a friend that does government contracting. He kind of guided me on what to do. But when I submitted it, I knew I was going to win. Cool. But when got I it. got it. When you get the first check, not the contract. Contract's easy. I've gotten contracts. When the first check comes and it says United States of America, the same people that say United States of America versus Jennifer Rogers, it said something different. It had some numbers behind it. <laughs> Two years. Now they wrote you a check to go in. How is that? Amazing. How do you explain? Explain it to the people that it is possible. It is that possible. That the people who are watching this, because you would have been watching this if you were still there, that one day you can get a check from the people that used to hold you. When I got my first $10,000 check. Dropping bars. We're going to do the math. but We're going to do the math. We're going to do the math. Someone asked me one time, what did you, what did it cost you to get to where you are right now? And I said, everything. Cost me everything. I lost everything more than once. And then I rebuilt it and I regained it. And when I got my first $10,000 check from the government, all I could do was just smile. <laughs> like, and it's really like, you really want to like get a little um, bold conceded a little bit just a little bit just a little bit like yeah the like, state i came out of hired me eight months ago and gave me control of the unit i used to live in not just go to random prisons the prison that i went to spent most of my time in the unit i used to live in they hired me back and said you will run that block mm -hmm. the pep talk program originated and was founded in the prison that i came out of and the state sat with the commissioner. They hired me, went through the whole process. We went in, did the orientation. I got a state ID. We did a tour. They had to take me on a tour. I don't even know tour this place. Right. They took you on a day tour. Like, let me show you where the rec room. Dude, I know everything is. They're like, oh, he's different. Mm -hmm. Then they took me out of my unit. They're like, yo, this is your unit. I was like, wow. Doesn't it make my, you feel like it's all, it was all worth it? 
When no, you, no, no. For hold me, on, it does. 14 years in the penitentiary. Listen, no, 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 no. I'm going to tell you why I feel that Oh, no, no, no. Hold on, hold on. Don't, no, no. You ask me a question. Right. No. <laughs> well, nobody at 14 years, but I've made the best out of it. Right. I've leveled it up as high as you can level up something. Right. But if you gave me the option of having this life and doing that 14 again, I'd have been a lawyer. Just call it a day. Right. But worth it for you. Why? I think we were all given a choice, right, to choose our story. And when you make something out of that story and you see your story change the lives of other people, for me, it was worth it. And I'm going to tell you why. Because prior to that, I don't know what I was gonna would have done in my life. I'd probably still be in Somerville, Georgia, talking about my bestie with my beer-drinking husband and my six kids. Like, you know, and, and not to say that there's anything wrong with that. No. If that's the life that you choose for yourself. But for me, I run an organization where I work with previously incarcerated women. The hardest thing in all of my story that I went through that I have only recently started to open up and talk about was when I lost custody of my daughter and I fought for her back at seven years old and I won. And I remember when I said to her, she had been living with me for six months at this point, the judge decided that you're going to stay here and live with me. And she looked me directly in my eyes with the most disgusted look that you could ever imagine on a seven-year-old's face. I can't believe that my dad let this happen. And I had to go in my closet and close the door and cry because that wasn't how I pictured the reunification of my family. And this was a child that worshipped the ground that I walked on before I lost custody of her. And we went through counselor after counselor after counselor and every therapist we ever had quit on us and I felt like a prisoner in my own home prison was easier for me than going home to that every day my career became my outlet which is why I became so successful how did you fix it with your daughter COVID happens locked in the house Locked in the house, but I had just had my companies open for about six months at that time, both of them. Rise Up Media Group, National Association of Women's Prison Reform. We're projected to do a million dollars revenue our first year. COVID happens, shuts it down. I've walked away from everything that I had done at that point. This is all I have that I'm invested in. And I'm like, how am I going to overcome this? And I knew that this was what I was called to do. And so I had to sit and I had to brainstorm yet again. So I take my company and make it a national advertising agency because that was one of the forms of revenue that we had. And bring it back July 5th of 2020. It's a Wednesday. Saturday, my 16-year-old daughter wakes up violently ill. Throwing up, head hurting, neck hurting, take her to the emergency room because I Googled her symptoms. I'm, we think it's meningitis. She has a ruptured brain aneurysm. We're transferred in an ambulance to Emory Neuro ICU in the middle of a pandemic. They tried to not let me come up on the floor because we're in the middle of COVID. I'm like, she's a minor. You don't have a choice. They get me up there. It feels like solitary confinement all over again because I'm in this little room. They won't let me leave. They're denying me access to a shower. 
in a private bathroom at Emory Hospital in Atlanta. And I throw the biggest fit that hospital's probably ever seen. I wrote emails. I went on social media. And I had access to my private bath and shower the next day due to that. But in the middle of this, I am literally watching my 16-year-old daughter fight for her life. And they wake me up the third night we're in there at about 3.45 in the morning saying she's showing signs of a stroke. If she would have had a stroke, it would have killed her or she would have been a vegetable for the rest of her life. I go out, I witness it. She's tremoring, she's slurring. They rush her out, and I went into that tiny room that I'm sleeping in a chair, and I slam the door, and I scream at God, why are you doing this? I've had enough. They bring her back 30 minutes later. The signs of the stroke is gone, and I knew in that moment, then, this is not about her brain. This is about fixing a fracture in a relationship that is much too deep for a normal person to fix. And I got to know my daughter on a level that most parents will never know their children. I literally watched her fight for her life. And we would have five steps forward and ten steps backwards. I remember her asking me when I am I going to die, and I couldn't tell her no because I didn't know if she was going to die or not. And I called my mom on FaceTime. I was like, if she dies in this room before I ever got the chance to really know her, I will die with her. My mom was like, you can't. You have another child that you have to live for. Like, you've got to get it together for her. And so I just, once again, found my peace and found my calm. And I sat with her. And I put my own hurt feelings down. And I held space with her. And I allowed her to open up with me. And we formed a bond and a connection that we never would have had otherwise. Six weeks go by, we finally get out and go home. She's totally normal. If you saw her today, you wouldn't know it. A month and a half ago, she went in for a craniotomy. They went in to clamp the aneurysms. We get home, four days being home, she starts losing cognitive ability. Call ICU, they said bring her in an ambulance immediately. Now we're back in ICU. She's having vasospasms, many strokes of the brain, all over again, here we are. Once again, two weeks later, we're home. Now we're planning on her to go off to college. Well, God will if you allow him to. Yes. Get your attention? Got my attention. Did he get your attention? COVID didn't get my attention. Shutdown get, did not get my attention. Loss of money didn't get my attention. Watching my daughter basically die over and over again on that bed brain tubes coming out of her brain lower lumbar drains center lines v lines everywhere so when you finally broke down and gave to god he healed your child yes when you broke down and gave in to when god i gave up when you gave when up, i gave in <laughs> when you gave in he gave you your kid back yeah and i had had her at that point 10 years for all the ladies and the guys i don't want to leave my brothers out who are sitting in the bunk right now and we go through stuff while we're inside. Yeah. I believe it's 10 times harder for women to be without their kids than men. Mm-hmm. You carried them. We didn't. And they're stressed out. They're depressed. Their kid might be sick. Yep. They might just not have seen them. Um, they don't know where they are. They dismiss them. And they're depressed. What you going to say to them? I think as a mother, and I'm going to speak to the women first because I can identify with where you are. Your child 
did not ask for this life. And we all make mistakes, and some of us get caught in our mistakes, and we have to live with that. But it is your duty as a parent when you get out of incarceration to do everything that you can, not only to mend you first, but to mend the relationship with that child. And it will not be easy. I made a lot of mistakes. I put my own agenda above the healing of my child because it was too painful for me to face. But she didn't ask for me to become a drug addict and go to prison. And she did not ask to come back to live with me. But I felt as a mother it was my duty to make things right with her. And it took 10 years. But I never gave up. And I kept fighting. And I did that for her because she deserved that. Just like your children deserve that. And you may get out and your kids may be with someone else. And you may have lost complete custody of them. I had no rights to her. I never lost my parental rights, but I didn't have any custodial rights. And I let that situation be the driving factor of everything that I did in my life to become successful so that ultimately I could go back and fight for her. And... You can't be mad at your children for how they feel because it was the choices that you made that caused that situation. To the men, I am not a man, but I know a lot of incarcerated fathers that have gotten out and have had the same struggles of reconnecting with their children. But just like it is the woman's duty to get out and mend things with that child, it is also your responsibility as a father to go and do everything that you can to make sure that your child is proud of you. But you have to be proud of you first. And it will pay off. And one day you will have a great relationship with that child. And it will all have been worth it. I know. I mean, everybody should know. The work that you've done and the things that you've been through. Are a testimony to what hard work can do. But going back, we have people who are just starting out. We're out. We have success. I have a saying, success is not a success without a successor. I mean, if we don't go back and lift up the people who we left behind or behind us, we're not successful with this lucky. And I don't believe that we're lucky. So I need you to possibly give some advice to what somebody can do right now to prepare themselves or to put themselves on the right track. Because there's so many conf- distractions yep. inside. Right. My biggest um, piece of advice is do the work. Do the work now so that when you get out, you're not overwhelmed with trying to do the work. And when I say that, what I mean is fix you because you can't fix the people on the outside. You can't fix what your children are going through. And we all know that when you're incarcerated, that We go into survival mode, which means we detach ourselves from our emotions and our feelings after a certain point because that is how we survive. And your ultimate goal has to be that when I get out, I no longer live in survival mode. And I did that for a long time. So day one, you're in prison. Day two, week one, week two, wherever you're at in your journey and you feel like, man, I've messed things up and I don't know how I'm going to survive this. Yes, you have 
mess things up. But the reality is you will survive it and you are going to survive it because what other choice do you have, number one? And number two, if you fix yourself now, if you go within now and you look at the things that are within you that caused you to make the choices that you chose and sit with that and forgive yourself and forgive other people so that when you walk out of this place, when you do, you are walking out with a clean slate and you are ready and able to walk into a room with your head held high and say, yes, I did those things, but I am not that person anymore. And I'm going to make someone proud. I'm going to make someone a lot of money, or I'm going to look at myself in that mirror every single day and say, you know what? I am worthy of the second chance that I've been given and I'm going to take full advantage of it. But you have to do the work now. What was the best program or thing you did while you were inside? For me, the greatest thing that I did incarcerated was go to therapy. Because it made me, and I could have bullshitted the therapist, right? And done what I had done in my teenage years when my parents had me in counseling. But I was honest. I was honest with them. I was honest with myself. And I admitted to the things that I had done wrong in my life at that point. And ultimately, I forgave. But I had to forgive me, too. It wasn't just about forgiving my mom or forgiving the people that stole from me when I got incarcerated, all the different times I went to jail. Like, it wasn't just about that. It was literally looking at myself in the mirror and saying, I forgive you for the things that you've done in your life, and I forgive you for the things that you've done in your daughter's life, and I forgive you for all of the people that you have disappointed at this moment so that when I walk out of this place, I am no longer responsible to anyone other than myself. That's phenomenal. And I've heard you say a few times, a few times, there were no programs where you were. Mm -hmm. See this thing here? Yes. They're watching us on that. Okay. And those give us the capacity and the ability to educate people in real time. Not 10 people in the classroom, not 30 people in the gym, but everybody. In solitary, in GP, in PC, whatever you are. Wherever they have you, if you have one of them, we can teach. And I can't wait for the Jennifer Rogers class to be developed and put on there. Because I want you to briefly tell the women the outreach that you're doing for them. Because you're doing phenomenal stuff for women who are inside. I mean, there's not enough time to tell all the stuff that you do. And there's never enough time to let the women know that there's people out here fighting for you. It's always about the guys. Everything Mm -hmm. focuses heavily on men in prison. But what are some of the things you're doing for women? So at my company, I hire only women. And I train women on how to sell over the phone. So I teach you how to have your own career. And I have another business model where I teach actually men and women my actual business. It is called the Up Business System. I have an online course. And what I do is I took the business model and how I have been able to make 20, 30 grand a month selling advertising on the phone. And I teach people how to do that. I give them my entire business in a box. What was the lady you said came into the prison when you were there? Susan? Katie Souza. Haiti? Katie. Katie Souza. Well, we don't know what Katie is. We definitely know what Jennifer is. And if you want Jennifer to pull up at your prison, talk to the warden, talk to the program team, shoot us a text or email on your tablet. Let us know. 
because she's doing that's part of one of your companies it going is. to prisons and speaking it is that's how we connected yes that is how we connected because i was like man go i did time in the feds too and i was like i was go to the feds and speak mm-hmm. but it's always like crazy processes and paperwork yep. then somebody said oh this is a contract that they gave out i went for it but through somebody else and i just never heard from them so when they connected me back to you i'm like yo we got on the phone when we started building I was like, okay, I walk with my sister. So I'm going to be one of your students and learn how to go back inside because I definitely want to shout out to the folks, but phenomenal. Thank you. Phenomenal. Thank you. There's also a course that's coming. We were just having this discussion, and I am building it out right now where I want to be able to reach the um, pregnant, incarcerated women. You can be able to reach a million people with that thing. So (laughs) building out a program. I am a certified doula. Um, also, so I'm building. If you don't know what that is, it's if you don't birthing. know what that is, you're a guy. You're a guy. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm the birthing support for the mother. Um, so I'm building out classes that we can teach for incarcerated women that are pregnant, uh, in hopes to roll out something where we can provide a doula for their births um, through the Department of Corrections or the FBOP wherever they're at. In closing, we have book selection here. You know what I'm saying. And this book here is for my good friend, John Rulin. And it just seems righteous. The name of the book is Giftology. It's all about giving gifts to people. And what I'm hearing from you is you're a giftology specialist. Every day you wake up, you're trying to find a way to give somebody a better life and a better understanding. Starting with yourself and then your own children. Mm-hmm. And then your mom. Mm-hmm. And... It's phenomenal. I tell you this, for 14 years, my mother couldn't say my name with respect because I was someplace doing something I shouldn't be doing. But if you ask my mom where I'm at now, she said, oh, Dre? Oh, he's doing a podcast to try to educate his brothers and sisters behind the wall. Where was he yesterday? Oh, Dre was out at the prison talking to some people about changing their lives. So, giftology. Listen, we're always going to promote books. Education is everything. What I'm hearing, what I continue to hear is education matters. It does. You going to pull up for him? I'm pulling up. (laughs) (laughs) With the accent and everything. (laughs) I am pulling up. Last thing I'm going to ask you, and most important thing, there are some sisters and guys who are depressed right now. Suicide in prison is real. Depression in prison is real. And I want the hundreds of thousands of people who have access to this who are struggling not everybody's struggling, but those who are struggling. I need you to give them an encouraging message of why they should hold on. Every single person has something on the inside of them that is so powerful. You were given this story. You were entrusted with this story, and it's not always a beautiful story. It doesn't always have a great beginning or a great middle or a great ending for some people, unfortunately. However, there is something on the inside of you that is so great that if you can just reach within and find it, you can have the most beautiful life. You didn't make it this far to just give up where you are now. You are not a tree. You are not stuck. You have the ability to move yourself. You have the ability to change the direction of your future and the choices of your past. I tell women specifically, you have the ability to give life. You are a life giver. 
You are a birther. Birth something within yourself. Give yourself life to the men. Same thing. You all have something on the inside of you that is so powerful, that is so great, that if you will just look within and find it, one day when people say your name in a room full of a thousand people, they will say it with a smile on their face instead of a grimace because you came out and you changed your life. And in the midst of changing your life, you changed the world. And that is what I commission you with today. The same thing that Katie Souza said to me 13 years ago. You are going to get out and your life is going to take off and you will never remember this day again except to use it to change the lives of other people. And with that, you can't come behind that. You heard her. She closed us out. We love you. You're special. We will be to see you soon. But this is day one. Academy of Hope, Pep Talk is in the building. Sister Jennifer, we appreciate you, and we're looking for that course, and you keep, keep doing your thing. Thank you. Until the next time.